Welcome back to the Good Trouble Podcast. My name is Gregory Ball. I am the Director of Production and Digital Strategy over at Embrace Boston. And today I have the pleasure of getting to know uh, a, a, a woman who has uh, been engaging in Good Trouble for a very long time. And we're getting to learn about her and her new role, which was actually inspired apparently from what i understand and we'll get into that as well um from from the title of this podcast so um my guest today is and is now your proper title is the director of good trouble yes yes. the director of good trouble for the boston children's chorus uh miss akiba abaka now wait a minute now i feel like i we, we just talked about this that was the americanized version now what is the actual proper version of how to pronounce your last name your full name actually hit me. Well, you got the Akiba part right, Abaka. Okay. Abaka. Yes. So there's more of is, is more of a, a a longer sound with the A. There's usually two A's, but I dropped an A because I figured people would ruin the last A anyway. So I just made it short and just said Abaka, but it's Abaka. Okay, so there's two A's on the end normally. There's two A's on the end, but I dropped one. Okay. Now- <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Akiba, for joining us today. And you know, the the whole idea of us with um with Good Trouble is really kind of get to know the people who are um making a, a positive impact in the community and in their roles. And you know, as I was learning about you and I, you know, doing my research, I I saw that you have been um an actor or you you kind of that was that the start of your kind of of artistic journey as being an actor and you know you've been an actor for your bio says over 20 years over two decades which is incredible like what what was it about the um what was the thing that sparked you to get into the world of um acting i saw stories that i recognized on stage, I saw my people on stage. I saw the goings on in my kitchen table on stage at the Strand Theater when the big road shows, the gospel road plays would come in. And I saw myself on screen, whether it was a sitcom, you know, mm-hmm. any of the any of the sitcoms that we remember from the 80s, right? I can name them. The good times, the, the 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 Cosby shows, the family matters, aspects of my coming into the world. I saw myself on stage mm. and on screen as a child, and I liked it. And I wanted to speak in that space. I wanted to be present in that way. And so I was attracted to acting. But more importantly, <laughs> this is this is hilarious. So I couldn't talk. I was so shy. I was so shy. Wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. Yes. Stop. You were shy. Cause so we don't know each other well, but I if I was going to pick a, a billion different there's a billion different adjectives I would have pulled out of my hat before I used the word shy for you. I was so shy, Greg. I was so so that that's why I'm laughing because I'm laughing at the paradox. So as much as I'd say I saw myself on stage, I saw my family, I saw all the mm-hmm. things. Blah, blah, blah. In real life, <laughs> try to talk to me, and I would either like you know mean mug 
or I would just smile and run away and hide behind my mom. And I was so shy at one point that my mother took me to the doctor to see, you know, was I mute? Because I was just that shy. I couldn't talk and my, the doctor was like, she'll grow out of it. So the acting, the stage, the screen was the way for me to talk. So the things that I wanted to say in real life that I just couldn't muster the courage to say in front of living people, mm-hmm. I could, you would put me on a stage or you put me in front of a screen, I could say everything. So the, the acting was my way to talk to people. Really? Yes. So it's, so it's, that's, that's interesting. So that was kind of your gateway to just open up and kind of connect and be able to, to fully express yourself. Yes. Now was now were you, are you the only artistic person from your family unit? Was it like, or was it, it was it one of those things where it was encouraged? No, no, interesting. Yes, it was encouraged. But creativity runs in through my family. There's always some generation of I'm the only performing artist in my family. So mm-hmm. they're they're mainly visual artists. So painters and um we we have a actually I'm looking on the wall of my niece's. Um, paintings right now so there my mother was a craft person my uncle was a very well you know accomplished painter in London and so there's always been art but I'm the only performing artist um and so that's the other side of it <laughs> oh you going in here we go so I was always encouraged to write so I could write mm-hmm. and I could act but I couldn't talk in, in in among in a social setting around people. So yeah, so I was encouraged. I think my mother given a chance to be who she would have wanted to be would have been a very well-known craft artist, but she had to be a mother and she had to raise her children and she had to do that that part mm-hmm. of life. So so she she when she sees the little creative ones in our family she's the first one to write the check um Mm -hmm. she's the first one to encourage them our house is full of paintings by my niece and um she so yeah we're always encouraged to be which is we're immigrants so that's very unusual for immigrant family to encourage their children to be artists because it's like no you're gonna be a nurse you're gonna be a lawyer we know that trope right we know that you'll be a doctor you'll be something that's gonna help you survive in this wilderness of north exactly well it's a trope it's it's not true we are encouraged to be our best self the most important thing that every immigrant child will tell you is your parents want you to be the best they just don't want you to be the best criminal don't thieve, don't rob, don't hurt nobody, but follow your dreams. So we were encouraged to follow our dreams and, um, and that's it, you know, so that, that, I just want to make that clear. That's, I I hope we can leave that behind that immigrant kids have to be doctors, lawyers. We just can't be thieves. That's the only thing we can't be, we can't be be criminals. I I think that's a universally held, uh, held position that we just don't want any thieves or, or anybody like that in the, in the house, but it's interesting to hear you say that and talk about that trope, because you know when I think about that, I I you know as I've gotten older, you know, because you, at least so so my family uh, is 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 not are not immigrants, but we I did not necessarily get pushed or encouraged to go in into the arts and follow my artistic endeavors because because of the idea of survival. So when you when we talk when we hear that trope or whatever, I I also I always look at that 
you know, now that I've gotten older, I look at it from a point of our families wanting us to survive in the world. And there's a nervousness, there's a, a um there's a perceived lack of stability within the world of the arts. It because there is so much um, you know, uh, a rejection. It's like if you're a plumber, you got a job. You get up in the morning, you know where you're going to plumb, and you know, you know what I mean, wherever you're gonna go. But if you're an actor, you know, you got you may have 20 auditions and you may not get any of them in there, you know what I mean? And that I think that makes parents totally, you know, whether they're immigrant or not, I think that makes parents nervous, you know, until you've shown some measure of success. Right. But once you you come in with a little bit of success and it's like, oh, okay, all right, you're gonna be all right. You know, Greg, it's interesting. I think so I, I'm a I like to call myself a high millennial, but I'm really Gen X. <laughs> um oh, I'm, I'm, literally, I'm, using, I'm gonna use that yeah. Using yeah that. um I, I'm right on the cusp. And so that puts me in a generation of real black success, right? So mm-hmm. when when it was clear, when my mom saw the writings, when she saw the play, I've been writing plays like full play since I was eight years old. When she started to see and um when she started to see the work and she started to see just little bits of, of artistic energy, she started to say, good, you could be the next Oprah. You should, she, she, mm. you, know, you could be, you could be like Felicia Rashad. There were always names and examples, um, examples, even in Jamaica where I was born of, of successful artists. You could be the, the um, you could be the uh, Leona, um, Hems, not Hemsley. Uh, okay, I'm not gonna. I know who you're talking about. I can't remember last name either. But but we had in 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 the speech of encouragement, there were at least twenty names that my mom would rattle off, encouraging me to um to follow their path, and so I I don't have an experience of ever being discouraged from being an artist or being creative or following my dreams because there were always examples of pathways that we could go in, that I could go in. So she's like, yeah, you're going to be. And then Tyler Perry came around and was like, you'd be the next Tyler Perry girl. You could do it. And it was always somebody who was black or and woman or black and had come from um, the working class or you know black and had moved their way and followed their dreams that she could tell me and say go do that and not just her the people at my church spoke to me like this mm-hmm. my teachers as a matter of fact I started at, I started at the Strand because one of my middle school teachers signed me up for the Strand team players and. I didn't go the first day I went, I was loitering with my friends after school and she found out that I didn't go. And she said, if you don't show up at the strand on Thursday, I'm going to call your mama and tell her where you were. <laughs> she just like, you got to show up at the strand. So there were always people around me who were um, telling me that there was a world where I could be a creative and I could be the best creative because there were examples. <laughs> That is beautiful because I think so many times, I think it's I think it's very essential to our success individually and collectively to kind of speak life into folks. So like they saw that spark in you and they just told you to keep going. 
And it, once you get told that you you can do something, you can go out you, and you go out and you start doing it. You know, I, I tell people all the time, the reason that the, you know, well, up until recently, the reason that the Patriots were successful was because it was an expectation of success. They came in and people talked about, we win here. This is what we do. And that's when we think about our sports teams here in Boston, the same thing with the Celtics. There is a presumption of greatness. There is a, a feeling like, you know, what we do here is we win championships. And because of that, when you come into that environment, you you rise to the occasion. And it sounds like in many ways, you know, while you weren't going for a championship, you were going for that in your world where it's like, hey, you can be on this stage. You can be on this level. You've shown this level of talent and people are put, are pushing you in that direction without without being overbearing, it sounds like. I was always encouraged. I And that's the reason why I take my career so seriously, because I feel that I owe it to my community, but moreover, I owe it to the narratives that brought me here. I belong here. A place was made for me here. And therefore it is my responsibility to, um, to, to look after that space. There's a term that is being used more often these days, culture bearer. And I see myself as a culture bearer because every story that has ever been told about who we were as a people, as an African people, as a people um, who survived on this part of the world in these two, two continents, North and South America, um, and how we formed ourselves as African-Americans. That brought me here. That is a there is a culture of survival, but there's a culture of creativity. There has never been an aspect of any movement and any triumph that did not involve storytelling and creativity. Denmark Vesey was a pastor. He was a storyteller. He was one of our greatest um, champions of of um, liberation and and rights. And there were all our great Dr. King right? Storyteller. Um, music has always been there. And so I, I, um, there is a, um, we're in the Christmas season. I'm a, you know, unashamed Christian. <laughs> and, um, there's a song, the little drummer boy, right? Mm -hmm. And I always saw myself as the little drummer, the little drummer person, because I'm, I can't fight. I'm not going to do all of that. You're not going to see me in the March, but I will tell you a really good story. And you, I, I will, write i will i will record what happened at the march i'll make sure that it's there for generations to come i will document the process so that the process can be replicated can be analyzed can be studied so when my family and my community you know, I remember there was a, I did a show at the Strand and my brother was in his twenties and put $3,000 cash in the show. He said, we have to encourage her. She's going to be successful. Give her whatever you want. My brother was like 24, you know, um, and put like real, you know, at that time, that was like real money back then. That's real money today. If you give me $3,000, <laughs> I'm having a great weekend. You know, and he he told he told everybody, he said, find the money, give get it to her. She's gonna be successful. And and that and he was basing that on the Tyler Perry's. He was basing on the success, he was investing in me based on the success of black people who were successful in the arts and in the in the creative field. And he still invests in me um in every way that he can. So um 
Thank you, Mark. <laughs> anyway, um, going back to, to this notion of, of being able to, to pay attention to your gifts and knowing how to apply them. And also this notion of staying in your lane. That's the thing that I do that has gotten me through is I, I stay in my lane, but I also look at what, what is the, 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 um, what is the unique ability in all the assets that you have that can help people and move people and move movements forward? You know, I may not be able to, to, to talk you up in person, but you put me on stage and I'm on and I could deliver a story in that way. Or I can write the story and give it to someone else for them to speak it, these kinds of things. I want to bring it into this work at Boston Children's Chorus and how it applies. Um, yeah. So, if you have any questions for me, so so, it, so it was interesting you said that because the my next question was going to be, do you think that that supportive, nurturing environment that you came from kind of laid the groundwork for you to kind of do that? Because not only so. You know, we talked about your success and your your ability and your 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 discovery of your talent in acting, but you know, you didn't just stop with being in front of the camera or being on stage. You talked about how you you know developed the talent as a writer, then as a director, then as a producer, and and building out those things out. And I would I would imagine part of that was out of necessity in some cases, just like you know you're building it and like you want to have the agency of telling your own story. Um, but you know what was what was the driver that kind of kept you going in that, and what impact did that that nurturing environment you came from have on kind of you kind of stepping into those roles? Because as a producer, you're doing that. As a director, you're working with art. You're working with actors. You're you're, you're getting them to under you know you're calming you like like you were talking about your nervousness. You may be calming their nervousness down or to get the best performance out of them. So what was it about that nurturing environment that kind of fed? fed you know even the work that you're doing today excellent question one i did not know i could fail two i knew that failure was never the end so that sounds weird right you're like oh you, you say you didn't know you could fail and you knew failure wasn't the end i came up in a in a in a window and of and, and interesting is the 90s there was a lot of stuff happening in boston in the 90s especially yeah. where we were i was on i was on blue hill and talbot that's that corridor i grew up in and oh, so you was over there oh, i'm from dorchester <laughs> i grew up in phil's corner but when you said blue hill and talbot i know it was that. yeah uh, that's know, that block that right and then from there it was four corners right so oh, like yo, wow, from the hood oh, it was, oh yeah okay i'm happy i'm happy you're here <laughs> so yeah right so maybe because of all the activity they wanted to make sure that that those of us who were young and coming up that we came up and we came up strong mm. and so there was just a lot of encouragement and really good goodness that was poured into myself and my peers so one no one told me I didn't hear any messages that we could fail I didn't hear that. I also heard that failure was a part of the creative process. So for example, um, 
there, I used to go to a program at the Lee School on Talbot Avenue. And you remember the Lee School had all the best talent shows, yes. all the best theater. And we That's were new addition hit the stage, yeah. new addition hit the stage, new kids on the block. It was the spot, right? Yes. That was our that was our Apollo. Yes, it was. Okay. It was the strand in the Lee School back in the day. Yep. And we were doing the whiz. We were doing the whiz and I was I was dancing. I would, you know, it was in the dance ensemble, but I was also because me, even though I was, so how I became an actor, a director is when I was acting, I didn't sit with my friends. I used to go sit behind the director because I wanted to know what he was doing or she was doing. I wanted to see the play from their eyes. I don't know why, but I used to always go sit behind the director and watch them. And um, the director needed some help with some costumes. So I went and um, David, David was his name. Uh, what was his last name? So just, I wanted to, he passed away, God rest his great soul, great, great um, purveyor of the arts and, and nurtured many of us coming out of that corridor as artists. But we were doing a um, some costumes. He's like, you know, you need some help. So I went and was helping and I loved anything creative. I loved anything that could get my hands on things and turn it into something. We were working on the costume and I put too much glue on it. And I said, oh man, I ruined it. I was so embarrassed. He, he comes up to me, he says, it's art. You can't ruin art. Put some color on it, put some sparkle on it. And it's a part of the costume. And he did it. He took that messy glue, too much glue on the costume. And he put some sparkle on it. And then he put something else on it. And then, you know, the costume just was even more of a costume. So even in that act, I had to have been uh, somewhere around 13 or 14. I then stamped in my brain, knew that I could, we have a term in hip hop called flip the script right? Mm -hmm. I knew I could do anything. I could change anything. There were no mistakes, only opportunities. And that happened, that, that was placed in me at like 13, 14 with that experience, with that costume. And, and that, that's just how I went through. So when, when we were, when I had up You Mighty Race in my twenties and, you know, doing all of that work, you might've known me from that work. And yes, I was producing out of necessity because we didn't have any money. And I was chief cook and head, head bo bottle washer because we didn't have any money. But I didn't know that there was a, this idea of, oh, this was a failure. I always saw it as this is an opportunity. This is a something new's gonna come, new is going to come from this. And I'm just going to go forward into it. That, that was always my mindset. That's how I, so I have to be honest, I didn't know when I was screwing up because I was always into the opportunity. I was always looking for that creative bend in the road whenever I, I found challenge. I always, was, I always knew there was a, a, a turn Something that would something would happen that would either throw me into a creative space or put my own creativity on display. I just didn't have failure narratives growing up. That's that's a, that's interesting to me that you know because I feel like that's a very unique situation for you to have gone through to go from you know 
a nurturing household, which is not to say that we don't have them, but to go from a nurturing household um, at a really tumultuous time, quite honestly, because I, I, you know, we were joking about it, but I, I truly do remember the city during that time. And I remember that neighborhood because my neighbor was very similar over in Fields Corner. So we, we have four corners in between us. So I know exactly the kind of energy that you, that was around at that time to go from that and then to find your next, um, your next bit of support outside the house. It's, it's one thing to have a supportive household and your family loves you and those things are there, but we don't necessarily always get that love and support when we get outside of the house. You know what I mean? So I think it's, it's interesting. And, it, and even with you and your role now as director of Good Trouble, you're kind of in that space of being that that positive influence outside of uh, outside of the kids' homes when they're a, a part of Boston Children's Chorus. I'm a part of a team of po po positive influence, and I and I have yeah. to position myself in the team because um, I'm, I've only been there for four months, and so anything that, as far as the positive influences, I'm I'm trying to catch the moves of the team that's already there that has been holding that up for 21 years, right? In succession, they've been successive teams, but that is that is the brand of um, Boston Children's Chorus. And the, the chorus was founded, as many people may know, by the great Hubie Jones and another, and a team, and a team of, um, Boston influencers and leaders who have supported Hubie's vision over the years. Um, and Hubie Jones um, was a social worker. As a matter of fact, he um, trained social workers at BU and, you know, went on to work at City Year and do lots and lots of great things. And when you think about uh, being a part of the team, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, I'm a theater person, I'm film, all that, but I don't know anything about singing. And I don't know anything about choruses. So my team, the team at BCC has taught me that it's rare that a chorus would be founded by someone who's not an artist. Mm. And, you know, Hubie um, founded the chorus and he was a social worker. He was a member of the village who understood the impact of ensuring just, just the same way that my community, the people in my village pumped into myself and my peer group because all of my friends are successful from that time and in every way, in every way, you know, um, whatever they're doing, they're doing it really well. Um, the same way that the people in my village saw the need to ensure that we survived and that we thrived and that we 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 helped each other along the way. Hubie and his team and the people in his village wanted to create that for Boston, for Greater Boston, around specifically around the topic of race and and um, discrimination that young people would face as they grow up. He wanted to build. Um, Opportunity, create opportunities. And here we go back to this notion of movement making, right? Mm -hmm. And storytelling and art has always been a part of the fabric. It is a key thread, storytelling and art, music and movements and movement making. 
the goal has always been to develop young people who would create an anti-racist, socially just society as leaders because they would have had relationships, friendships, um, social connections with people who look like them and people who didn't look like them. And they would be able to know the difference between the tropes and the things that they were being told that separated them. And they would be able to reject them because they had experiences in this one moment in their life. I had a 25 minute experience with a glue gun and a theater director that taught me that I couldn't fail. The children in BCC, they come in at age seven and they leave at age 18. They get about 11 years of experience of knowing who they are, that they can sing, they can lift their voice, they can be friends with other people, they can they can lead, they you know they get eleven years of that. Some of them, actually, a, a quite a a lot of them go through the whole process. But even if they get one year or or a half a semester with us, they have an experience that imprints on their being that informs how they see themselves in the world and how they see others, right? and where they present, they position themselves. So if we think about the influence of um, adults encouraging um, young people or passing on positive narratives, I'm always inspired by this chorus because a social worker, a movement maker created an artistic space, right? That would develop more young people. Who, and also, uh, I look at our alums. A lot of our alums are not in the arts. They're scientists. They are in policy. <laughs> they are, they're educators. You know, they're not singers. They're not anywhere near the arts, actually. Um, one of our, I was in a conversation with one of our, our, our alums who is currently working on her PhD in Europe. And I, I believe she was in, in London. And, um, and you know she's going into into human development neuroscience research you know um and she still stays in communication with us but um that that idea of and there are many and there were many other there were you know coming up in Boston there were there were a lot of experiences there were negative experiences there were there were experiences that caused trauma there were a lot of experiences but I always had a through line of you can and you, and you can be and so what's happening at Boston Children's Chorus why the chorus works why we're in 21 years is that the intention has always been clear um children um can learn to value themselves, to hear their voice, to value each other, to be positive contributors. And we had to create experiences and opportunities for that. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you so to hear you talking about that value in the arts and how many of the alumni are are not, you know, working in artists at this particular point. But I feel like once you're an artist, you're always an artist. Yeah. Um, but to me, that really underscores the importance of the arts. It's not, I think many times, and, and I can say this from coming from my community, I think many times because we're in survival mode, um, going back to what we were talking about, the whole idea of why your parents don't, your parents uh, or parents would not want their children to go into the arts, because we're in survival mode, 
we're like, oh, whatever you do, if you're making art, then you got to figure out a way to make some money. You got to be a superstar or whatever. And mm-hmm. the value of art is, to me, is so far beyond that. It is so far beyond that. I, I say that the art can do two things incredibly. It can either be the catalyst for thought or the catalyst for connection. Either I'm getting a message from the art that you're you're giving to me and is, is filling me up and is giving me information that I may not have accepted any other way. Or the fact that you and I both love, you know, Beyonce's new song is, oh, you like it? Oh, I like it. We see each other. So it's a catalyst for connection. It's a catalyst for for, converse, for conversation. And I think that beyond just the, the idea of turning it into uh, a monetized thing or, you know, that you have to keep playing until you're, you're at Carnegie Hall or whatever, the arts, the arts fill each of us up and it, it you know, it's something that is in all of our lives, and I, it, it's lovely to hear the, the that kind of the drive that as the driver of the work that you are you're doing over at BCC. Yeah, I'll tell you a story about the arts and that that motivate. And I, you know, I'm very blessed, and and because of my of all the wonderful things that I've received in life, um, great stories. I'm always sharing great stories with people. A friend. Um, who's a pastor, um, a baby boomer pastor told me a story about myself. He says, you know, so some people know me um, as Vanessa as well. That's also my name. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's one of my names. Um, uh, He said, you know, Vanessa, some people go through life answering the questions that life asks them. So for example, you go to high school, you graduate. He was from Georgia. You go to high school, you graduate. When you go back to your fifth, five-year uh, high school reunion, they ask you, you, you got a job? What job you got? So you make sure that you got a good job to go back to the reunion and tell them about it. Then you go back to your 10th year anniversary. They say, you got a woman, you got a family. You make sure mm-hmm. you got a good woman and a family so you can tell them about it. Then you go back and, you know, every year you go back, you know the questions. And he says the questions that life are going to ask you. He said, but you, Vanessa, you, you live a life based on the questions that you ask life. You don't live a life based on the questions that life asks you. You, as in him defining who I was as an artist, he says that what you do is you You live your life based on the questions that you ask of life. And those questions that you ask benefits us because then we get to see them on stage. When that man said that to me, the tears Mm -hmm. that rolled down my face. And this is a member of my village, a pastor, someone who's always, you know, attended my shows and the good ones, not so good ones. But that was the definition. And he was here member of the village saying, here's the value of the artist. The artist asks the questions of life that helps us, the non-artists, experience them through their work and therefore they become our questions, we the non-artists. Um, so yeah, a little bit of storytelling there. I mean, but that is essential and it's, it's so so let's get back to some of the information side of things. So. You you're you're minding your business as a little kid and you find you discover the arts and that's the way that you start to speak out to the world. Everybody pours into you and says, go, 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 
this is the direction that you want to go in and you started to build it to the point where you're making shows you're doing all these things where did or or actually maybe you can explain that was there a pivot where you said hey how do i do this and support other people where you know obviously you have your role where you were over at, at, at arts emerson and those things that you've done in the past um and even even the role that you're doing now so i'm you know where where was it where there was a pivot where you were like okay i want to i want to kind of support the community with some of this some of this my endeavors and, and my energy no it's not it's never was a pivot it was a duality wb du bois okay. talks about the double consciousness well it was i've always had that double consciousness so there was never a pivot for me um when I was at the Strand, my whole career was on stage <laughs> performing and off stage writing the plays and lighting the plays and finding ways to find the money for the plays. So the responsibility, and that's the other side, it's a duality, it's a complete double consciousness here. Um, the art, because sometimes we, art is so beautiful. Art, art, art speaks to what we see and we feel. It's sensory. And Sometimes we, because it can be so, um, how should I say? Because not all art is beautiful, but all art is wonderful. It, because it's hitting us in our senses and it's so spectacular. We don't really see that how severe art is. Art is very severe. Art is very, you, an artist is, is a scientist. A scientist is an artist. You have to be very organized. We don't have little magic wands where we go, you know, zippity-doo-dah-day, here's a great piece of painting. Here's a great rap. Here's a great poem. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite poets is uh, Portia Olawayu, our poet laureate. She's amazing. Oh my God, she blows my mind. And you know, even the freestyle rap artists, right? Your, your Jay-Z mm -hmm. and all your freestyle. That is real intention. It's an organization of thought, of awareness, of consciousness that gives you that. So there is there isn't this notion of, well, when did you pivot to being an artist, to being, are you saying like a community organizer or, or an mm -hmm. administrator? It's the same skills that we, when we're artists, we are organizing the space. One of the terms that I love from hip hop is move the crowd. Well, how are you going to move the crowd, right? This notion of call and response. When I say this, you say that. It takes a lot of awareness and courage to even stand on stage and say, when I say this, you say, because how do you know they're going to do it? How do you know they're going to respond? You have to do it in a way that's going to make them respond. The other night I was at the Berkeley tribute to hip hop 50 years. And we got a surprise visit from Flavor Flav. And he does this um, call and response that was primordial. It was art. It was artifact. It wasn't just art. It was, it was anthropology. It was, it, you know, I was sitting there and just for a moment, I wasn't an audience member. I was a, re a researcher. I was just sitting there listening to him and watching him. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is this is pre-transatlantic slave trade that he's echoing off that stage. 
This is going way, way back. This is the sound of the abang. For those of us who know what an abang is, the abang is an animal horn that uh, some of our ancestors used to call out miles and miles um, to each other. He's invoking the spirit of the abang through this hip hop chant, right? So the art, and, and, you, and you say a character like a, 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 a slave of slave, right? In the, in the theater, we would call him the fool, the jester, right? Mm -hmm. Right? That's in the theater, right? But there's another aspect where we would call him a legba, right? We would call him, you know, different names, right? It's a powerful position. He knew that position. And for about two minutes, he took us through a call and response that organized the space in preparation for Roxanne Shante to come on stage. But he knew he had to set that space up for her mm -hmm. entrance. So there is not a separation. I think the most important thing is that artists are aware of, artists need to constantly, constantly be aware of every mark, every sound, every move I make organizes the space. It is instructive. It is present. I am, it is a call. All artists are, are organizers in that way. Fashion designers are organizers. They set the trend, what colors to wear. Do you roll up your pants one leg or keep one leg, um, both legs down? You know, the artist must understand the awareness of what they're putting out there because you're organizing the space. So I hope I answered your question. Of, you I did. You're asking. You did. Yeah, okay, good, good. You did. I, but I, I, it is interesting though, like if those, with that duality, um, as you're in this new role, and I, so just so you, I don't know, did, did Andres tell you the story of how it became the director of Good Trouble? Yeah, listen to the podcast. Oh, yes. okay, okay, okay. That's why I'm so nervous. I'm like, I can't go on this show. This this, this man is, I, in a lot of ways, he's one of the villagers that I'm I'm accountable to you, Greg. You, well, you listen, no, <laughs> you you absolutely should not be feeling nervous in any way, shape, or form. You are at home when you're when you're here um, having these conversations with us. So that that is what it's for. And you know, I I I'm always very fascinated with the the idea of that that journey, how people get to that. So. Tell us about how you kind of came over to uh to BCC. How what how did how did the winds blow you to South Boston slash corner of Dorchester ish or wherever that where the BCC is at? Well, you know, I I um I wanted to do something else. I've been at Arts Emerson for eleven years, almost 10, 10 some ten plus years, almost eleven. And I saw what could happen there. The thing about being in a large scale organization is you know you have access to um, a lot of resources and a lot of different people. And um, we were accomplishing, as you know, really great things at Arts Emerson. Um, and I saw that, and, and there's always more that can be accomplished. We were definitely not the pinnacle, but we we were we were making good strides over there. And I and I had a lot to do with that. A lot of things that I created um impacted the community um and brought 
a lot of visibility to Art Emerson. And I, I basically, it's not that I got bored. I just saw what that could do. <laughs> and I was like, I want to see what else this thing can do. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was I got myself into the MFA in theater education program at Emerson and um, knew that I wanted to go back into education, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to be in the classroom per se, but I knew that I wanted to work with the next generation. Like I wanted to work with young people. I wanted to take the things that we were, that I'd accomplished and I wanted to, to, to put it into this part of, of, um, society, the, mm-hmm. the developing brain, um, and then I saw the title, Director of Good Trouble. <laughs> I looked at it and I thought it was a joke at first. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was looking for, I was looking for a new job. Let me not make this, let me not call it, you know, make it sugarcoated. I was looking for a new job. I wanted to do something else. I saw all that we, we could accomplish um, at, 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 the, at the past organization and I wanted to do something fresh and new and I wanted to work with young people. So I saw this job and um, I looked at it and then I saw the job description. <laughs> Whoa, that's real. That That's the right thing. That's exactly what needs to happen in, in, in an organization's. And then I saw the the job description and I said, but I don't want to do that work there. Them kids at BCC, they're real privileged. You know, they got their little red jackets because well, that's the perspective on the word on the streets is, you know, Boston Children's Chorus, they're them privileged, well-off, mm-hmm. um, yep. you know, and, and they're kind of elite, the elite chorus of Boston. And, you know, and again, that's a trope. <laughs> um, there are all sorts of people there and, and, um, and we always need money um, to to reach to reach people. So uh, we're we're not we're not a big elite chorus. We're chorus of the children, and um, we just do great work. But anyway, back to 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 this work. So I thought mm, this is the right work, or this is exactly what, especially the nonprofit space needs. We need um, a role that takes EDI work and up uh, in and is as important as the artistic director and as the director of education and as the development. And that's what my role is. It's a composite of all those positions, you know, influences all those those, those aspects of the company um, through a social justice and civil rights lens. Um, so at first I was like, I don't wanna do that there. Mm-mm, them kids are too privileged. I don't know, they don't need, they don't need that. <laughs> Um, that's this is the kind of work you do in a in a, a conflict zone, um, mm-hmm. not at a well-off chorus. And then um a friend of mine came to me and said, Do you know Andres? <laughs> and I said, I've heard of him, but I've never met him. And he started to tell me about Andres Holder and his vision for the chorus and his vision for this position. And I leaned back in my chair. I was like this, I was like, <laughs> you know, like one of those pullback because you got to pay attention. Mm-hmm. I said, well, who's this Andres? I've seen pictures of him. And if he is who you say he is, 
I I think I'm I may be interested in what he's doing. So long story short, took the time, put the thing together and started the interview process. And during the interview process, because they put me through it, they put all the candidates through it. it was six rounds of interviews, you had to write lesson plans, you had to teach a couple of classes. It was wonderful. But throughout the process, it was very clear that the Boston Children's Chorus is an organization that understands what 21st century leadership is about, that it has to be human-centered. Um, it's more than a show. It, it had, the experience I had just going through the interview was one that was very humanistic, but one that was accountable. They were assessing your skills to be responsible. The aspects of the, the, the organization that was revealed, the problem was put right out front. Oftentimes people bring in their organization and they just paint this little pretty picture. And they say, you know, we've always want, we've social justice has been in our DNA, but we haven't achieved it yet. They said that. Mm -hmm. we've, it's, it, it, we, we've been doing it and we've been doing it in pieces, but we still feel that we need to achieve it. And I thought that was I was very impressed by that level of transparency in an interview process. And I thought if they're this transparent with candidates for a position, you can imagine how serious they are about the work they were doing. And it wasn't just, you know, cute kids in the red coat singing good songs that they really wanted people, like you said earlier, um, how, when you asked the question about how we um, as adults, our, our responsibility to the singers, you know, how we stand as um, beacons to the, for the singers to look up to. But they, wanted, they want people who are going to understand that that's their responsibility and that that is what they're coming to do. They're coming to contribute to shaping the world and um, the opportunities of these young lives. So, it was a very, very rigorous process. And the, the the rigor, the more they put me through it, is the more I wanted to work for them. Mm. And then when I, I didn't meet Andres until the final interview, and he was the last. So let me just, let me say this. The last person I met in this six rounds of interview was the executive director. I've never experienced that. And I thought, wow, the first thing you meet were the singers. The first aspect of you met the work before you met the big fancy players. You saw what the work really was about. And um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. But no, it, it rigor was, was clear. It absolutely does. And it's just, so kind of for, for our audience, kind of fill, kind of fill in the blanks of, what the director of Good Trouble does over at uh, at uh, Boston Children's Chorus, like kind of what is the 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 kind of major tasks that are that are in front of you? Yeah, definitely. Um, it it is 
on paper, right? So like on paper, it says, you know, to um, increase, you know, help the organization move towards being an anti-racist, anti-ableist, more just organization. Um, and I think the best the best way, the shorthand is to say that the position is a composite of equity, diversity, inclusion, justice. And I always add a, an extra word on there. I had advancement. So I say E-D-I-A-J, equity, diversity, in, inclusion, justice, and advancement. Um, so there's that work, right? So making sure that the organization um, is thinking about you know, how we are serving our core constituents, our singers, and that we're we we're centering equity, that it's balanced, but also we're thinking about the staff and we're thinking about all of our stakeholders, right? So there's that work. Um and then there is some work in development and there's education. So I'll be writing a social justice curriculum and I'm in the beginning stages of preparing for that. Um, and that social justice curriculum will pair with the music education curriculum. And, that, and, and eventually what will happen, it will be one curriculum that is, um, you know, seamless, that the music and the social justice work are just, in lockstep and 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 we'll probably get to the place where we have just one um curriculum so there's that work and then there is um communication so just working with the chorus on you know how we um, build partnerships and the different groups that we work with that could be in service of our singers and I like to say singers and parents because the parents and the alums and the singers there well the parents are as much a part of this experience as the singers um, because they make sure that the singers show up um, but also they they are there to make sure that they are the parents are like for me the the home that I was in that was constantly encouraging me or the um the 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 different groups that I was a part of that was, that's the parents. So we wanna make sure that those groups are constantly empowered and feeling that they have the resources to keep helping their singers move through the process at BCC. So that's 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 like the aspiration. Right now, what I'm doing is, is getting organized. Um, just like I said earlier, I, you know, I'm, I'm real artist. There's nothing that I do that is not creative, like it's not art based. Mm -hmm. So I go back to hip hop, you know, my job is to move the crowd. So how do we move this crowd? How do we move this crowd forward? You know, you may say the people over here, well, what are those people? What are they doing? What does that work look like? Um, so right now is to so when as I as I go forward in in getting organized, I'm looking at from 2003 or 2004, where are where's the social justice through line from 2003 from first year to now that has been the core aspects where the where are the aspects of social justice that has been present in the chorus. And, and and categorizing and organizing that work, cataloging that work, codifying that work, right? 
And you may say again, because I want to break up this myth that artists are frivolous and um, that we don't have erudite qualities. We do. Um, we're very, very organized. And it's actually the art, the artistic side of me that allows me to come in with questions, the creative side of me that allows me to come in with questions, to look at the space, to try to organize it. So from the first MLK concert in 2014, 2004 to, to was it 2004? I think it was the first concert um, to now. Um, how has that experience shaped the city? Um, what has been that contribution there? What are the aspects? So then I'm looking at the work and like, um, remember Transformers? Remember mm -hmm. that, that TV show? Well, how did the, they used to take it apart and put it back together. So right now I'm taking the chorus apart mm -hmm. so that we can put it back together, right? So then we can also understand what are what are its different iterations? What are its different, what is what are the different shapes of the chorus? How has that shown up over time? Because 21 years is a, is, you know, is a clear tradition. And why has it, why has this tradition worked? And where do we want to go as far as shifting from landmark to legacy with mm -hmm. the course, right? Um, so let me see if I can give you a, a fancy answer as far as what are, what are you doing at, in, in the way of good trouble? Let's see if I can give you a fancy answer. Uh, we are currently dissecting the chorus okay <laughs> and identifying every way that social justice has shown up in that in the space every way what are the humanistic values that the current the chorus is currently organized in and then making decisions and saying, okay, we're going to classify, we're going to codify these things, and then creating curriculum around that. Wow. That is a lot of work. <laughs> that is a lot of work. You're going to be a busy lady. Or I would say you are. Done a, by you Q3. Are. <laughs> I mean, you are currently a busy lady. I shouldn't say you're not, go you're not going to be. You are currently a busy lady. So, so with that level of work and that the depth that you have to go to to kind of kind of reimagine what the chorus is. Um, do you still find the space to uh, fulfill your own artistic endeavors? So, like, I know that many times, like, that's a lot of, takes a lot of energy and a lot of, you know, and there's only so many hours in a day. And I don't think as an artist, you ever kind of turn that off. You're yeah. using those superpowers at work, but then, what about when you're not at work? You know, or what, what about for you, for, you know, for your own artistic things? I I am actually. So <laughs> um, I have a theater production company called Akiba Abaka Arts Incorporated. Yeah. And unlike Up You Mighty Race, the first company, which was um, really centered on producing, you know, like a repertoire, a repertory theater. It was more of a rep theater, um, which means that we'd have a set of plays that we would run throughout a season. So you could get, like when you go to like a, a, a company one or a front porch, 
Arts Collective, you mm -hmm. can see exactly what they're going to do between September and May, right? That's the yeah. rough, right. And you know, okay, oh, I can go see um, uh, Raising the Sun at, at, at Front Porch, and I can go see, you know, um, um, a Kirsten Greenwich play at Company One, you know, you know exactly what's going to happen next, right? And then they are going to do those plays from September to May, and then next year, there's going to be a different set of plays from September mm -hmm. to May. Well, Akiba Abaka Arts, um, we're a for-profit company and we basically build plays that would tour the international circuit for a length of time. So we may take three to five years to develop one play and then we send the piece out on tour and it can be on the circuit, on the international circuit for 10 years, forever, for all we know, that's the goal, right? We want it to be on the, you know, touring, changing casts over time. So that's what we do. We also develop processes for creating plays. And so mm. we're, our first process that we're developing is called the multiple port system, the MPS. And it, it the nutshell here it is, it's developing works about Black Atlantic people right? So all the ways that Black people wrap around the Atlantic mm -hmm. um, by developing plays by Black Atlantic writers in regions that were formerly slave ports and plantation states. So we have a process where we take the play to, you know, we build, we'll build a, a, a map, we'll build a route for where we're going to develop this one play. And we'll do workshops and um, build the audience for the play inside of these regions well before the piece comes to Boston. Boston then becomes the last stop, but it's also where we premiere the work and then it goes out on tour. So that is a more, um, I like to call it my mom and pop um, theater company, but we take we take our time in developing it because we, the work, because we want it to last. So that work keeps me very busy because you can imagine if we're working in different, like we, the the play that we are working on now is called the Bar Girl of Jamaica. And mm -hmm. so we do, we we started that piece in Kingston um, at the University of the West Indies. And so there are times when I, you know, may go away for a weekend to work on that and in the different regions that we're working on in it. And the goal is that we're going to premiere Bar Girl between the season 24 25 so Boston will get to experience that and see how a play um that started you know outside of this country comes into the country and all the different narratives of black life black Atlantic life that influence its development and um so the final you know we put the bells and whistles on it here in Boston and then we send it out to tour so that's and the, the thing about that that allows me to get to be very because people say artistically when I'm in the theater they're like oh she is very intense and I'm very intense when I'm in the theater so I can just have little bursts little pockets of really intense creative work that I'm doing in the theater and then my administrative work where I'm putting my artistic lenses on things that sustains me. Um, so that that's what I'm doing now. And then I'm also a playwright and I, um, you know, just slowly working on a, a really great piece um, that will come to light one day. <laughs> when do you have time to rest? <laughs> I don't, that's the thing I don't do well. 
I, I do nap. I take naps. I can take a nap in the middle of the ocean. Like I could take a nap anywhere. I could take a nap at a Beyonce. As a matter of fact, I took a nap at, a, at the Beyonce concert. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I took like How a. How did you take a nap, nap in the middle of that? At the Beyonce. Yes, I did because uh, I, you know, I was. It was like right before Blue Ivy came on, and I just closed my eyes and I just did like a meditation. Just you know, just shut it down for for a minute, and then she was on, and then you know we were doing that Blue Ivy dance. Um, but yeah, I did take a nap at that concert. Yes, I did. Um, so, okay. So how it works. So many years ago, I took this course in statistics and my statistics teacher taught me, you don't do all the work in one day, but mm. what you want to do is you want to organize. So you do a little bit each day. So you may carve out like 30 minutes a day. And if you, I'd rather do work in these little small pockets, like 30 minutes a day for five days, right? I'm going to get two and a half hours of work in, and I'm going to be really focused for those 30 minutes, right? But if I were to sit <laughs> with my level of distraction and just distractibility and try to work for two and a half hours in one day on one thing, I'm not going to, I'm not going to focus. But if I say, okay, and I carve out this little bit of time. So that's what you do. You don't do it all in one day. And then um, resting is not something I do very well. I'm learning that. I need to figure that one out. I have to figure out how to rest. I, I'm not good at that. Um, yeah, but I'm okay with failing. Remember? Yeah, but you can't fail with sleeping because that fails your health. That messes your health up. You got to no, take care of yourself. I so do. Get I, I would imagine that you have actually seen artists who have have pushed themselves so hard that they did not take care of themselves. Um, I don't think I'm that kind of art an artist. Um, and I definitely believe that you should sleep. You have to sleep. But I'll tell you this. It's more about focus. It's more about focus. And you know, the other thing is, Greg, I have a, I have the privilege of a career that doesn't feel like work. Mm. You know, I I I have the privilege. I do what I love. I love this work. I love I love this. I don't feel like I'm going to work. And whenever I feel like I'm going to work, I go find and I go and change directions. So I'm staying doing the thing I love. So I don't feel it. Yes, I do sleep. I do need to sleep a little bit more than I currently do, but that will get there. I'm keep, I'm working on it. That gets better over time. But um, I think just, just thinking, I'm just thinking about your listeners and trying to not get boring here. <laughs> I think it is really about focus. I think you have to find something that wakes you up every day. You have, for me, I have a life where I'm like, if I slip into a coma, what I want to do on earth is going to get me out the coma. Cause I'm going to be standing in front of St. Peter. And I'm going to say, listen, man, I got something else to do. I got to get this thing done. So I think you you gotta have something that you want to do every day. You gotta got you have to have an appointment. I have a life. My whole life is an appointment. All the questions that I've asked life places me somewhere in life. I've had the privilege of going around the world. I haven't gotten to Asia yet. I'll get there, but I've gotten there because I asked questions of life at eleven that got me to Italy when I was twenty seven. 
because I wanted to know this and I wanted to know that. You got to be curious and you have to let the curiosity inform your creativity. And you have an appointment, and that gives you energy. That gives you energy. I'm, I'm in my 40s and I feel like a teenager. I'm like, when am I going to get tired? Because I, I'm curious. I have a lot of questions and it wakes me up every morning. Do I get tired? Yes, I get tired because I'm human. But, you know, that's what like, you know, girlfriend trips are for and little excursions to the Caribbean every now and then like that. I do that. But um, you the most I, where I get my energy from, I get my energy from the questions that I have for life. How does it work? What can you do with this thing? And the curiosity informs my creativity because I have never done anything like anybody else. I do things very different because that's just that's just how my brain works. If I follow the path that's already paved, I'm gonna get bored. But I but if but I'll I'll sometimes follow that path to see how I can replicate it in a different area. So when I went to train in Italy in my 20s. You know, I remember I was going and one of my good friends said, what you going to Italy to be a director? You're the best director in Boston. What you going to Italy? You know how to direct plays. I said, I said, I know what I know, but I'm going to Italy to learn what I don't know. So we were in Italy and we were training up in, in La Mama and the work they were giving us to work on was Shakespeare and um, Chekhov. We were working on some Chekhov and, we, and Shakespeare, you know, people do those works because the playwrights are dead and the, you know, they don't have to pay the royalties. Mm. So I, um, yeah. And then there, okay. There's theater people that are like scolding me right now. I, I can feel like the, the eyes of the theater people. No, we do Shakespeare because he's a great writer. No, he is a great writer, but then you still don't have to pay for the royalties. <laughs> so um, anyway, so we're working on some, 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 you're doing the seagull and we're doing the, the, the um, Hamlet piece, you know, we're doing the thing. And I said, yeah, but is this going to work on fences? Show me these techniques on some August Wilson. Mm. And lo and behold, Enrique Pardo, who we're working with, who's doing some dance drama work, some, you know, physical stuff. He said, okay, go get the, go get the, go get me some August Wilson text. And I go and I pull out some shape, some fences. I pull out Rose's monologue, Act Two, Scene Two, um, Act Two, Scene Five. I've been right here. I've been standing with you, Troy. That monologue, right? Oh yeah, I, that's the um, Viola Davis. In, in, <laughs> well, the character's uh, name is yeah. No, the character's that, name that, is that's the piece that was like the the real yeah. piece that I remember that was really crystallized from yes. from, from from the movie. Yes, I've been standing with you. I've been mm -hmm. right here with you, Troy. Yes, yes, that that monologue, Act Two, Scene Five, and um, and so I pull out that monologue. I said, "Do do all of that on this," and I'm just like that too. That's how I act. I'm like, "Do that on this. Let me see that work on this. Because if it don't work on this, then you ain't got no technique." Thank you to kick me out, but that's me. I'm going to go in your path and I want to know, did the process that you use to create this path, can I replicate it over here? Because mm -hmm. if not, then we're going to classify it very differently. You're not going to tell me this is a way of life if it cannot be applied to my life. 
right? And so these are these are the little the little ways that I get energy. Question everything and use the questions to inform my creativity and then try to make a way. And one thing I want to say to you about that, especially because we're at Embrace Boston and this is in the spirit of Dr. King and 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 the two the the your founder and your ED are my alma mater, the two beacons, two beacons are involved and I'm sure there are a lot more beacons involved in in embrace shout out to UMass Boston um <laughs> yes yeah, so you, you are a beacon just like me yeah so, so you're a beacon as well okay yes, so UMass, Todd, you know we we had to do what we had to do on that little strip of on that peninsula out there all right so what it is and where you get the energy where I get my energy and we talk about this notion of diversity right mm -hmm. And we also talk about this notion of the single narrative. One of the things that has organized society that has hurt societies, plural, is this what this notion of this one way is the way, this one God is the God, this one path is the path. The, these principles or, organize humanity. That's dangerous. Mm -hmm. That is abusive, right? So we should constantly foster, we should question these things and we should constantly find ways to understand them and borrow for them from them and use them to build up other spaces. There's a writer who is very popular right now, Adrian Marie Brown, and she talks about emergent strategies, right? How are we interfacing with each other's experiences ideas, pathways, and how are we building on them? Because if not, we're having these like calcified systems of thoughts that organizes and abuses societies. Mm -hmm. So the way that the way that I've navigated the world is one where I'm constantly just experiencing different things and bringing them in, in, into, into the space to, um, to build, to build out new spaces, to build out new experiences. And then there are some things that we do need to leave behind. There's some things where we need to say, that was in that age, that was in that era. And we can learn this thing from it, but this thing, we're just gonna have to say it happened <laughs> and leave that behind. And there are multiple, multiple mm -hmm. things. I don't, you know, let your imagination run wild with that. I don't need to give examples. So there, the and it, no, you know, there, yes, going back to what you said about artists and creatives and 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 some people in spaces who don't care for themselves. I think if you can't care for yourself, care for your energy. Mm. Look after your energy. Look after the thing that wakes you up. If you were in that coma standing before St. Peter or Sojourner Truth, because I think it's going to be Sojourner Truth that I'm going to see at the pearly gates, along with, you know, St. Peter, maybe. Who knows? But she's going to be there to let me in. Okay. Um, yes, she is. And I, I, From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> and, um, you know, whoever you meet in that moment when you enter the next place that we go to, um, if you were to say to them, I want and I just need a few more minutes to get this done, will they say, okay, all right, go ahead, take the time you need and come back? Who knows? I'm, I'm a theater artist, I'm a storyteller, I'm making it up. Mm -hmm. So I can do that. All right. So you gotta have something to wake you up in the morning. And that thing 
resources, your energy. Take care of that and you will have all the rest you need. That's how I, I, I that's what I found that has worked for me. I care for my energy. I care for my curiosity. I care for the ways that I live and breathe and enter the world in a creative way. That looks after me. I'm good with that. Well, that, and see, that's an incredible, that is an incredible thing to kind of give people as a, as a parting gift, is the, that philosophy of just taking care of your energy. And I think that more than ever, we all need to be doing that. And that's why the arts are so incredible because they help us do that. They're a part of that, that taking care, whether you're creating art or whether you're engaging in it, um, and I mean, enjoying it and receiving it. I think they're, they're an essential part of our, of our lives. And I appreciate you sharing with us today. See, that was painless. It didn't even hurt, did it? No, no, it was fun. It was fun. It was, you, you wanted to get to know me. That was fun. Well, listen, I appreciate you joining us today. Um, and let people know where they can get, in, before we go, let people know where they can um, connect and get involved with um, Boston Children's Club. Yes. So Boston Children's Chorus, we are bostonchildrenschorus.com, excuse me, .org, Boston mm. Children's Chorus, drop the apostrophe. Um, and then we're, we have the best social media, like our Instagram is like, I go on our Instagram all the time for entertainment. It's just so well organized. So go on the gram. I think, you know, you can find us whatever way you find people on on social media. Um, we're on all the socials, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram. And um, yeah, so you can find us that way. But one way you can find us in the most important way is you're going to see us at the tree lighting. So today we're down at the seaport for the tree lighting. So come okay. down and come sing a couple songs with us. But on January 15th at 4 p.m., we are at the Symphony Hall for the annual, this is the 20th first annual MLK tribute concert. Okay. And, and I'll, I feel like that kicks off our public facing concert series, mm -hmm. um, because that's one that we present and tickets on are on sale, um, now. So you can go on our website or just go into the symphony hall website and the tickets are very affordable. This is the outing you bring your family to, you bring your church group to bring your students to don't come alone um, this is, it's just a very moving and moving experience. Um, anytime I go to the, the MLK concert, I always feel like I can go change the world. So if you're looking for, speaking of taking care of your energy, that's a really great place to take care of your energy at the MLK concert, January 15th, 4 PM symphony hall. Come check us out. Other than that, you'll see us around town performing, go on our website. The other thing that I want you to do, if you have a singer, and we have a few six-year-olds who, who, are, who are sneaking into the chorus. We welcome them as well. You have a child that will not stop singing. Do not tell that child to shut up. Don't tell them <laughs> to be quiet. What I want you to do, I want you to go to our website <laughs> and register your child for the chorus. Send your singers our way. Um, unfortunately, we cut off at age 18. So if you have any like 58-year-old singers, um, send them in our audience but we can't get them in the chorus, but they could come sing with us in the audience. Okay. All right. <laughs> I was, see, I was getting ready. Cause I was getting, you know, I was getting my, you know, cause I'm a singer. I know if you ever, you didn't really, like, you didn't really like, cause I don't really try to, 
Cause I don't try to show off. You know what I'm saying? No, I no, try, no. I try to keep it, you know, keep it to myself. Yeah. I want other people to flourish. Yes. I yes. know if I come and start singing, it's going to change the whole situation. Well, so. we welcome you on January 15th. There'll be some opportunities for you to sing along with us during the chorus. You know, I'm sure we're going to, I can't share the repertoire. And, you know, we have to save that for the show. But there you can um you could be in the chorus with us in the audience. So you basically tell me I can sing, but sing from my seat. <laughs> <laughs> I would say lift every voice from your seat at Symphony Hall on January 15th at 4 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listen, Akiva, thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of Good Trouble. I appreciate you. I think that the uh Boston Children's Chorus has got the right woman for the job. Um, and I think you are going to be incredibly successful over there and you're going to continue to be incredibly successful so good luck in all your endeavors and i'm i feel like i i, I can i always can kind of get a feeling of of our episodes and i feel like your yours is going to be one where you're going to get requested for me to bring you back so we're going to have to figure <laughs> out how we're going to bring bring you back okay well i hope so i hope i didn't more. i hope i didn't bore you guys i i you know i like to write plays and have other people talk them so I hope something I said, even if it was just one word, remember, you don't need a lot. A little goes a long way. And so I hope something I said was useful to, to somebody in your world. Well, we know now that you have gotten over this shyness. This is definitely an example of you. This shyness is long gone. <laughs> no, it's still there. I'm still shy. I'm still shy. I just know when to be on. I could use I came up in the Boston Children's theater pat gleason she said it's called charisma kids i know when to turn it on and it's on and i give it to you but i'm still very shy as a matter of fact you may see me at an event and i seem so reserved and dem demure approach me i'm just shy <laughs> well listen i'm i'm gonna make sure that i come over and give you a great big hug if you, yes. if you take hugs and yes, so you will not be being shy around me anymore all right Yes, that's what's always happening. I'm very shy. All right, ladies. Thank you so Stop. much, gentlemen. I appreciate you all for listening to us and uh, make sure that you take the time this week to get in some good trouble. <laughs> <laughs>